This is an Area Code podcast. Welcome to Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm your host, Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider trying to embrace a genre I've always held at a distance. Let's say this podcast completes its mission to explore the lives of all the women who had a part in building country music. Let's dream. Let's say we reach the year 2021 and we get to talk about Mickey Guyton and Marin Morris and all the women making music today. We would be tempted to look back and say, but who were the greatest? Who had the greatest impact? Who brought the most joy to people? Who innovated the most? Who had the best voice, played the best fiddle, wrote the best songs? Of course, there are places to look to start answering these questions. Halls of Fame, for example. As of 2021, there are only 24 women inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame by my count, out of a total of 188 inductees, and I'm including individuals within groups for this tabulation. Since this podcast is more promiscuous in its definition of country music, we might look at other external measures of success. Like, did the artist have their own postage stamp? Today's musician Lydia Mendoza does. Has the artist received a national medal for the arts? Lydia Mendoza has. She got it the same year as Aretha Franklin. These are not, of course, markers of country music success. Lydia Mendoza isn't in any country music encyclopedias or databases that I can find. If she is mentioned, it's merely as someone else who is making music at the same time as, say, the Carter family. She's not embraced as a country artist, and she would not have called herself one. However, like Cleo Mabro, her sound is part of the mix that built country music, and she was a pioneering artist of that sound. I shouldn't have to play for you a montage of songs that firmly fit within the canon of country music that borrow from Mexican and Mexican-American music, but here it goes anyway. The sky is just as blue The day is just as bright The birds are singing too Hold me close and say you love me While Amigo plays his blue guitar This is the story of a yellow bandana A handsome young soldier and a girl named Rosanna Where they fell in love when stars 
love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Out in the West Texas town of El Paso I fell in love with a Mexican girl Yes, I'm gonna change everything That holds a memory of you Oh yeah Oh yeah I'm gonna start with the walls Take the pictures off the walls And burn them The sun is filled with ice and gives no warmth at all The sky was never blue The stars are raindrops searching for a place to fall And I never cared for you The list goes on and on. There is no Western in country and Western music without Mexican music. It's part of the genetic code. If you listened to the last episode on Cleoma Bro Falcon, and I hope that you did, you heard about a woman in a male-dominated music scene fighting to push Cajun music past its boundaries. Her first record was in 1928, the same year another woman in a male-dominated music scene pushed to be heard despite considerable odds. Lydia Mendoza is the subject of today's Wildwood Flower. How to even begin talking about Lydia Mendoza? She's on a postage stamp. She won the National Arts Medal. As the first star of Tejano music and Mexican-American music in general, she's in the Tejano Music Hall of Fame and the Texas Women's Hall of Fame. She is beloved all around, and to my great shame, I did not know who she was until April 2021. How to even begin? Let's begin by talking about bubblegum rappers. That's rappers with a W. As a girl in Monterey, Mexico, young Lydia would chew bubblegum. On the inside of the brand of bubblegum that Lydia would chew were song lyrics to popular songs at the time. Lydia kept a collection of these lyriced gum wrappers with her at all times, a kind of pocket hymnal, except the pages just held words and no music. She needed to find the music, and she did because she was always listening. She was always arranging her circumstances to put herself in the way of music so that she could find the melodic match to these bubblegum wrapper lyrics. Here's an example. Lydia was in a drugstore when a traveling band of musicians who called themselves Los Aguacates, the Avocados, a great band name, came into the local corner store asking the owner if they could play out front. The owner said no, that he didn't want to pay them. The band said they didn't want to be paid by him. They just wanted to use the space. The owner said no, that he didn't want their music to attract drunks and the police. The band went away looking for another venue. Young Lydia overheard this whole conversation. After the band left, she convinced the owner that having these musicians play would attract people to the store. The owner changed his mind, the band played, and things happened exactly as Lydia had promised. 
Of course, Lydia didn't really care about bringing customers to the store. She wanted to hear the band. She perched near the musicians, took out her bubblegum hymnal, and listened. This is a nice story. Not everything that happened in Lydia's childhood would be so nice. Her family was poor and never rooted. The number of times that her parents moved her and her brothers back and forth across the southern U.S. border from Monterey, Mexico to Texas is dizzying to relay. Both Lydia and her older sister were born in Texas. Lydia was born in Houston in 1918. Her parents moved from Mexico to Texas just after they married to escape the turmoil and violence of the Pancho Villa Revolution. That's why they moved to Texas. Why her parents stayed in Texas for the years following is a different story. Pancho Villa's troops had captured Monterey and arrested all the men that fought against Villa. Lydia's father was one of them. Her father, though, avoids execution by telling the officers that he's working undercover for Villa on orders from his cousin, who was a captain in Pancho Villa's army. The officers make some inquiries and find that the name of the captain checks out and they let her father go. Her father's cousin, though, finds out and is angry. Lydia's father was not, in fact, a spy. He was fighting against Pancho Villa. To escape from Monterey, her father had to dress in his wife's clothes, and the family made it across the border. The story doesn't end there. When they make it to Laredo, Texas, they find out that a general in the Pancho Villa army is stationed there. Lydia's father reported to the general, claiming to be his cousin, Captain David Contreras Torres, and regaled the general with his exploits, telling him that he would like to return to Mexico to continue fighting for Pancho Villa, but he just needed money to get back. His story was so rich in detail that it convinced the general, who gave him the money. They used the money to move to San Antonio instead, then to Navasota, then to Houston where Lydia was born. Yes, it seems that staying in the U.S. for the time being was a good idea. Her father would leave from time to time looking for work. For a while he impersonated a priest while traveling to Philadelphia, wearing vestments he bought at a second-hand store. He stayed in Philadelphia for months, not leaving any money for his wife and two girls. Lydia's mother had to make shoes for her girls out of old tarp. She would catch birds for them to eat. Her father eventually returned, but not with money. He only had complaints that there was no work in Philadelphia. He was also a drinker, spending what little money they had on alcohol. They eventually moved back to Monterey for a couple of years, and then back to Texas. This was 1920. Upon crossing the border, the guards doused them with gasoline in order to kill head lice. The gasoline got in Lydia's eyes, and she became ill. She remembered the horror of this for her whole life. According to her, 1920 was the last year that this practice was legal. Lydia's mother was musical, and she had a guitar, which Lydia became obsessed with. Her mother didn't want her to touch it, so she hung it high on the wall. One day, four-year-old Lydia manages to climb some furniture and retrieve the guitar. Of course, as soon as she made her first strum, she was found out and punished. A little while later, Lydia noticed some neighborhood girls playing with a rubber band. She noticed the sound the band made when it stretched and was plucked. Lydia finds her own rubber bands, a board, and some nails, and makes her own guitar. At the age of seven, her mother realizes that Lydia's passion for music is real, and she agrees to teach her how to play a real guitar. 
They move back to Monterey when Lydia is 11, and at this time good at playing. Her grandmother is pleased to hear of Lydia's talents and teaches her more songs and techniques. She also sings with her, but only within the home. Lydia's grandmother and mother, though musically talented, would never sing in public. It wasn't proper for a woman. Lydia quickly picks up the violin, mandolin, and piano as well. She says that these were her toys. She wasn't interested in anything else, like dolls, like the other girls would play with. Lydia remembers seeing Maria Condesa, one of her father's favorites, as a child in a theater in Monterey. She first heard the song Mal Hombre, a number that would become very important in her future career at a variety show in Monterey. Of course, she had her gum wrappers in her pocket. Here's how she tells that moment. In the course of the show, that pretty girl came out and sang. When they announced Mal Hombre, I became very excited. I was always very alert for the names of my songs. Wherever we went, I don't know why, I carried around that repertory just in case I heard them. She sang two tangos. One was called Desgraciadito, which didn't stick with me, and the other was Mal Hombre. And when she said Mal Hombre, I got out the paper, the gum wrapper, I had it with me. I just heard the music to that song that one time, but I memorized it. As soon as I got home, I began to practice it and go over it, and it stuck with me. That's how I learned Mal Hombre. Mal Hombre would become Lydia Mendoza's breakthrough hit about a decade later in 1934. Because Lydia's family was constantly on the move, the children had little formal schooling. In 1924, her father wanted to move back to the U.S. Her mother said okay, but this was the last time she was moving. If they moved to the U.S., it would be for good. One of the reasons for this decision was because of prohibition in the U.S. If the father couldn't get alcohol so easily, things would be better for the family. The family uneducated and unable to find work, decided to turn to music for income. They formed a family band, Lydia on vocals and mandolin, her mother on guitar and vocals, her father on tambourine and vocals, and her little sister Panchita on triangle. Like Los Aguacitos in Mexico, the Mendoza family would ask restaurant and shop owners for permission to play to entertain their customers. They wandered and played like this along the South Texas border until one day her father saw an ad in the San Antonio Spanish-language newspaper La Prensa that the OK Record Company was auditioning Spanish-language musicians for two weeks. They hitched a ride with a friend, promising payment upon arrival. The OK Company liked their sound, and they paid them $140 to record 20 songs and they paid for the travel expenses, and they bought their driver four new tires, and they gave the Mendozas lodging and food for their time in San Antonio. To the Mendozas, this was a fortune. 
but in reality it was very little considering the potential for royalties which the Mendozas did not receive. As they were leaving, the OK representative asked her father the name of the group. They didn't have a name. After a minute of thinking, and I guess with booze on his mind, he said, We're the Quarteto Carta Blanca. Carta Blanca, just like the beer. Carta Blanca was a popular brand of beer at the time. Here's one of those first recordings by the Quarteto Carta Blanca entitled Monterey. Recordings gave them both confidence and opportunities for performances. The success wasn't immediate, but the work began to pick up. Lydia's father then hears about work in Michigan. The family made the move and began working at a ranch, picking produce. They lived in a shack on the ranch property. One weekend they were playing on the roadside when some men suggested they play in town, in Pontiac. They hitched a ride and it paid off. The way Lydia tells it, people were giving the family stacks of silver coins at their performance. They were making more money than they were packing produce, so they quit their job and started to make music full-time. They were the only group playing Mexican music in their part of Michigan. The family moves to Dearborn so her father could work in the Ford plant there. The family continues to play music for parties and events. Their time in Michigan is short-lived. Her father loses his job in 1929 when the stock market crashes. They decided to move back to Texas, where it's warmer. They lived in Houston for two years in the early 30s, in the Magnolia neighborhood. As the littler Mendoza children grew, they were incorporated into the band. Lydia's mother sang lead with Lydia on harmony. Her mother also wrote several of the songs that the family band would perform. With no desire to go solo, Lydia began to experiment on her own with singing lead, just practicing alone, accompanying herself on guitar. Her confidence began to grow. Her father got the itch to move again to Monterey, saying that he was tired of working for these gringos. Her mother stayed true to her word and refused to move. The children wouldn't move either. Rather than going by himself, he stayed unemployed in the U.S. and complained. The family wins a singing contest that affords them the ability to settle in San Antonio. They begin singing in La Plaza de Zacate, which is a kind of open-air market. Several musicians would set up there, busking for tips. The common practice was for musicians to approach and follow people, asking directly for song requests and tips. Rather than doing this, the Mendozas found a spot to set up near a popular food stand. The people came to them. One day, a man and his friends approached the group at the plaza and requested to hear Lydia perform solo. She did, and was tipped well. This was the start of her solo career, though very much as a subset of the family band at this point. A radio man named Manuel Cortez came to the plaza to eat dinner and heard Lydia sing. 
Cortez hosted a San Antonio Spanish-language radio program. Cortez tells Lydia's mother that she could become a star if she would sing on the radio. Lydia's mother asks how much she will get paid, only to find out that she will not get paid for the radio performance. Lydia's mother says no, that the only way the family makes their rent is to play the plaza. Lydia's playing on the radio would take away their livelihood. Cortez convinces her to let Lydia do it once to see what happens. Lydia sings two songs and is thrilled to have had that experience. Two weeks later, Cortez finds her again at the plaza and begs her to come back. He's getting so many calls asking for Lydia Mendoza to sing again that he's tired of answering the telephone. Her mother again refuses. Cortez promises to find her a sponsor for her radio spots. He does, Tonico Ferro Vitamina, and Lydia begins a regular weekly radio performance, making $3.50 per week. Cortez also commits to getting the family out of the plaza, arguing that a big star like Lydia shouldn't be playing there. He finds the family more lucrative restaurant gigs and a circus-like tent show called Carpa Garcia. Lydia is entered into a singing contest, something that sounds akin to The Voice or American Idol, where radio listeners and live audiences vote on their favorite singers over a number of weeks. Lydia is the subject of jealousy for her success and taunts for her family's poverty by the other contestants. She even suffered discrimination from the festival director. Here's how Lydia tells it. Dresses were to be worn with a big sash or ribbon across them, bearing the name of the store. It was like an advertisement. Each store would give $5, a fortune at that time, to the singer who wore its dress. So in that way, they dressed us all up in different dresses from the various stores. Amongst the group of contestants, the others were very jealous of me. It wasn't my fault that everyone voted for me, or that the public preferred me. At that time, my hair was very long, and I wore it very high in braids, but the other girls in the contest used to make fun of me because of the way I looked and dressed. I only owned two dresses. And those other girls? No, every day they went out all dolled up, showing off jewelry and all that, and I didn't have anything like that, but they were still very jealous of me. On this occasion, when all the stores provided the dresses, they brought some very pretty outfits. When I arrived and the woman who was in charge there in the theater asked me, Haven't you put on your dress yet? What dress? I replied. Well, the one you're going to wear for the show, she told me. Oh, I didn't know. Well, all the other girls were already walking around with some extremely beautiful dresses, and they gave me a really ugly white one. It was very plain. There wasn't anything fancy about it. They had left the ugliest dress for me. They not only gave me the ugliest dress, they didn't even give me the five dollars. Well, that didn't bother me. Here's your dress, the wardrobe girl said, but are you sure that you've taken a bath? Well, I might be poor, I told her, but yes, I did take a bath. Well, if you get it dirty, you're going to have to pay for it, she said. So the other girls went on stage, showing off their fancy dresses, but the audience just gave them a little light applause, just a little polite clapping. And when I came out there in that shabby dress, woo, the roof almost flew off the theater. The public didn't care how I looked. They just wanted to hear me sing. Lydia also says that the director in charge of the show discriminated against her by putting her on at the very end of all of the performances and by rehearsing with the other girls a little bit too long and playing leads a little bit too long for her accompaniment so as to push Lydia off of the program altogether. 
This didn't work because the audience protested, claiming that they wanted to hear Lydia, that the only reason they came was to hear Lydia. The support she received from the crowd made all the other contestants more jealous. When the final votes came in, nearly every one was for Lydia Mendoza. She won a bedroom set. Manuel Cortez, the man who put her on the radio, was managing Lydia's career at the time. He was making quite a bit of money off of her, with Lydia receiving very little. When Cortez would drive around in his new car, people would say, there goes Cortez with Lydia Mendoza's money. Men are beginning to be interested in Lydia, but her father has none of it. He does all he can to keep Lydia from even speaking to a man. Because of this communications blockade, Lydia's younger brother, Andres, begins charging interested men for the passing of messages to Lydia, five cents per message. There's one particularly interested young man who works as a shoe salesman. Lydia and he begin a relationship entirely through correspondence and looking at each other from across the room while Lydia was performing. Lydia finally confesses to her family, begging to allow a proper dating relationship. The family agrees under strict chaperoning. The young man is allowed to come to the house to talk to Lydia with her family present. After three years of this courtship, Lydia and the young man, named Juan, decide to get married. Her mother approves and they set the date. Her father explodes and refuses to give her permission for his daughter to marry a tomatero, Juan's dad sold tomatoes. Lydia is 18 at the time. After a year of her father's refusing the marriage, Lydia is desperate. Here's how she put it. I wanted to poison myself. Believe me, I'm telling you straight from the heart. If I was going to poison myself, it wasn't because I was so in love or because I was afraid of losing Juan. Something just came over me, to see my father so reluctant and everything so upset. So it just came to me. Well, so there won't be any more problem. I'll just poison myself. I was by myself in the kitchen, thinking those thoughts, and my little sister Panchita was sitting there staring at me. God alone knows how I must have looked, because Panchita wouldn't take her eyes off of me. I was talking to myself, what I have just said about poisoning myself. I was standing there, saying to myself that I should take poison and put an end to all of the discord in our family. Well, God in heaven knows that I was going to do it because I was desperate. I didn't know what to do. I wanted agreement. I wanted Papa to approve of my getting married. I didn't want all of those arguments and disagreements and bad feelings. It wasn't because of some great love or in order to get married for love. No, the reason that I wanted to go, to leave this world, was because I couldn't stand all that disagreement and disapproval, mainly from my father. Lydia goes to the bathroom, searching for something poisonous, and finds a bottle with a skull and crossbones on it, filled with a white liquid. She assumes this is poison. Her sister Panchita has already suspected Lydia was up to something and ran to get her mother. Just as Lydia raised the bottle to her lips, her mother knocked it out of her hand and onto the floor. Lydia told her mother why she was trying to kill herself. Her father enters the room, and her mother yells at him blaming him for her daughter's suicide attempt. He relents. He allows her to marry. Later, Lydia would find out the liquid would not have killed her, but would have burned her throat. In 1934, Bluebird Records started recording again after the Depression. They were looking for Spanish-language acts in Texas. 
Of course, they were interested in Lydia, and she's promised $15 for each record she records. She records four songs for her first session. One of them is Mal Hombre, and another is Al Pie de Tu Reja. Al Pie de Tu Reja becomes a big hit, and Bluebird comes back telling Lydia and family that they want to sign her to an exclusive contract. They only want Lydia, not the family, but Lydia agrees to sign if they promise to record one or two songs with the family. The New Deal was a promise to pay royalties. They make new recordings, but several months later no royalty checks are coming in. At the next recording session, the father demands a new contract not based on royalties, but based on payment to record. In hindsight, this was not the best deal for the Mendozas to make, but they didn't know about the record business. Bluebird agrees and pays them $40 per record. to the shoe salesman Juan. The day of the wedding, her father dresses up and takes her to the church, but leaves immediately and locks himself in his room. He doesn't attend, and it breaks Lydia's heart. On top of that, the reception is at their house. As soon as people arrive, her father comes out of his room and kicks everyone out, even Lydia. After the wedding, two representatives of Bluebird come to Lydia's house, telling her that since she's married, she needs to re-sign her contract. At that time, a man had to co-sign for a woman. The Bluebird representatives were a woman whom Lydia had worked with before on previous contracts, who served as a translator, and an Americano man whom Lydia did not know. Neither Lydia nor her husband could read or speak English, and they signed what they told them to sign. Shortly after this, Lydia received a tax bill from the government for $30,000 based on the royalties that she should have received. She had not received any royalties by this point. She doesn't know what to do. 
She brings this up with the record company, who tells her that she signed away all of her back royalties. The man who swindled her fled the country. Bluebird told her they would take care of the tax bill, and that was the last she heard of the matter. If $30,000 was the taxes owed on income from her royalties, think about the incredible amount of royalty money stolen from her. Juan listened to the advice of his family and believed it would be best if Lydia no longer pursued a music career. He wouldn't sign any more contracts for her and would not permit her to perform. Also, Lydia becomes pregnant right away and gives birth to a girl. In 1936, her record sales begin to skyrocket, and she was getting a lot of offers, which she could not accept. Her family was getting offers too, but on the condition that Lydia appear as well. Without an income, the family, without Lydia, was back performing at the plaza to earn what they could. Juan's shoemaking career is languishing as well. They are in poverty. Lydia finally convinces him that there's money in all of these contracts being offered, and that there's no reason to struggle because of his family's tradition. Juan finally agrees, and Lydia and her family begin performing and recording again, and would for the next seven years. Here's how Lydia describes her recordings. When I went to record, they never told me, record this, record that. I recorded the songs that I brought with me, many of which were the songs that my mother sang. When I came to record, I recorded a lot of her repertory, like Perro Ay Que Triste, Al Pie de Tu Reja. But those songs didn't come on gum wrappers. En los besos de mi negra, deliciosa, no puedo dejar de quererte. All those were my mother's songs. She would sing them when I was a small child, and later with the group when we were traveling around singing in the streets. I believe that most of those songs would be from the time when my grandmother was also singing them. The Mendozas began to develop a variety show for touring, complete with comedy routines. They began to tour all over the Southwest, though touring implies that they had arranged gigs in advance along a pre-planned route. This was not what the Mendozas did. They would drive to a town to see if there were any buildings that might be used to host a performance, for example a church. They would then talk to the priest or the owner of the building and negotiate. Many times the buildings had no electricity or seating. The Mendozas would put up pre-printed posters around town advertising the show and advertising the need for people to bring their own seating and light. After the show, the Mendozas would clean up and, if permitted, sleep in the space they booked. They spent all of 1936 this way, traveling from small town to small town, making just enough money at each gig to make the next gig. They weren't able to save anything. They didn't tour theaters because all the theaters were owned by white Americans who had never heard of Lydia Mendoza and wouldn't give her a chance. Lydia Mendoza records begin to be played on border radio stations, 
the border blasters that would send illegally powerful signals all over the U.S. XER, the station that also featured Samantha Bumgarner and the Carter family, also featured Lydia Mendoza. Though it wasn't quite Lydia Mendoza. It was her music being played, but XER had an actor in the studio pretending to be Lydia Mendoza introducing her songs. Lydia got some lawyers involved and they put a stop to it, when it began to cause confusion for her fans, who wondered how she could be giving a concert in El Paso if she's on the radio in Del Rio. Another man advertised on the station that he was selling Lydia Mendoza photographs for one dollar. The man made a lot of money. Lydia had millions of fans by this point, but Lydia, of course, did not see a cent of it. Lydia becomes known as La Alondra de la Frontera, or the Lark of the Border, for her ubiquity along the South Texas line. She also gained the nickname La Cantarera de los Pobres, the Songstress of the Poor. In 1937, the Mendozas are called out to play their first theater in Los Angeles. The family left San Antonio and played all the same churches and event halls they played the previous year. When they made it to El Paso, they finally found a theater owner who would take a chance on them. They played a theater in Las Cruces. It was a huge success, and the theater owners called other theater owners on their route to tell them the value of booking the Mendozas. They made it all the way to California, playing theaters this time, and making better money. They played the Mason Theater in Los Angeles for 10 straight days. Two performances a day on weekdays, and three performances on Saturday and Sunday. Their great success in Los Angeles led to shows all over California. They returned to San Antonio in March, more famous than they had ever been. They recorded more sides with Bluebird. They also had journalists, fans, and photographers hanging around their home. Here's how the newspaper, the San Antonio Light, profiled her at the time. The class will now come to order. Who knows the feminine singing star who really goes to town when it comes to doing business for the Victor Record Company? Connie Boswell? Francis Langford? Maxine Sullivan? Nope, your musical IQ is next to nil. The gal who sells more records than any other solo artist is none other than Lydia Mendoza, Latin American citizen of San Antonio. For four years, she has been strumming her guitar and singing her Spanish songs in front of Victor's recording machines, and the results are heard around the world. Her records are sold all over South America, in Spain, and other parts of the Spanish-speaking world. She's called the Poor People's Songbird. Miss Mendoza, who lives at 306 North Leona Street, doesn't know how many thousands of records have been sold, since she does not receive a commission, but she has put some 400 songs on the black discs. Surprisingly, she cannot read a line of music. She's self-taught, never had a music lesson, and plays and sings entirely by ear. She works out her own arrangements. Besides the guitar, she plays several stringed instruments, including the violin. She has appeared on radio programs here. Her most popular song, Bad Man. Lydia describes what life was like at this time. Despite a few ugly things like that, the discrimination that all Mexican-Americans encountered at that time, we had a happy life, quiet, very contented. Because we had lived many years with constant calamities, when we lacked for everything, including at times even food and all, now when we started to work in real theaters and all that, when my name started to get big, well, now we felt we had seemed to us like a life of millionaires. 
because nothing was lacking for us compared to what we had lived through before. So whether we were eating a little or a lot, we felt that it was all right. At least we had the wherewithal to keep on living the basic necessities of life. We at least had the means of clothing ourselves and food to eat and the ability to have a tranquil life. It was like that. We lived happily, and I was very content because I was with my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all of my family, my husband and my little girls. We were going around, enchanted with life. Traveling like that was a very beautiful thing for us. We weren't suffering like we had been before. What is this discrimination she's talking about? Aside from the financial and linguistic discrimination we've seen by the record companies and theater owners, restaurants would also often refuse to serve them, leaving the Mendozas to cook for themselves. Hotels would not house them, leading them to stay in people's homes or in the venues they just played. Traveling had dangers of its own. One evening in 1938, the Mendozas were to play a theater in Lyman, Nebraska, and had to make a 40-mile dirt road drive from Scotts Bluff to get there. Half of the family band went ahead in one car. Juan, Lydia, their daughters, the babysitter, and a cousin were all to follow a little later in another car. The second car had not arrived by showtime. The other half of the family started the show anyway, since Lydia's part was toward the end of the act. As the show went on, Lydia had not yet arrived, the family began to get worried. It was past time for Lydia. The family was stalling as long as they could, and the crowd was beginning to get restless and wild. Lydia does finally arrive, but with her head wrapped in bandages. She walks to the stage and closes the show. The family finds out later that Juan had been driving too fast and flipped the car into a telephone pole. Lydia was the only one injured, with a minor cut on her head. The Mendoza's final tour as a family was in 1941. They had to give it up. The war was on. There was no gasoline for traveling. Two of Lydia's brothers were called to war. Juan goes back to making shoes. Lydia's children start school, and Lydia ponders the future. listening to Wildwood Flower. Lydia's story doesn't end here. We'll pick up again as we move through the decades. Artists, I'm looking for cover songs to be featured on the podcast. Please get in touch with me on Instagram at wildwoodflowerpod or through email at wildwoodflowerpod at gmail.com. If you're listening back to previous episodes and want to cover a song, think about covering a Lydia Mendoza song, that would be nice. Be in touch with me. I would love in the future to have an all-covers episode of Wildwood Flower. And I need some Lydia Mendoza covers to go in that episode. You don't have to be really promoting your music or anything. If you just feel inspired and want to share what you've recorded, I'd love to hear it. 
Ways to support women in music and ways to support the podcast are in the show description, along with references and a song list from today's episode. The next episode, Adeline Hood. Thanks for listening to Wildwood Flower.